So I'll just do a little brief intro, talk about you, and you can talk about you. Excellent. And, um, then we'll no, just I, I, jump straight in. Yeah, I mean, I'd love, I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear what I have, what I have done enough to be introduced as a thing. <laughs> I'm I'm interested to know because that's that's the that's the only true reflection uh, of of my of my life in public is what other yeah, people it's introduce like me. Fifteen as. seconds of talking before you talk. Well, well I'll tell you this: is um, I'm doing a uh, panel at um, wow. my alma mater uh, in like two weeks' time when I'm back from Russia, and cool. they asked me to supply uh, an, an introduction for myself. And I looked at everyone else in the panel, and they're like, "Fucking doctor of this and that of media studies <laughs> or whatever." And I was like, "Riley is an online dumbass whose opinions you should not listen to, and really has no business on this panel." Yeah, I, I didn't think I'd, I'd be invited to do a blood panel at my university. <laughs> <laughs> fully gay space luxury communism and i got a special special guest with me this week they're all special this show's roster is like the back of a bus that's none more so than this week because uh we got riley quinn from trash future podcast out in the uk uh, he's Hello. also been in jacobin the new statesman uh probably some others uh yeah, he's so. been invited to a panel it's very important uh, so, pan- podcaster, writer, panelist, Riley Quinn. Absolutely. Uh, introduce Me. yourself. Hello. Um, well, you, I can I don't know if I could really do a better job than uh, a podcaster, a writer, uh, a panelist. Um, I'm a, a frequent, frequent uh, sleeper in, um, and Lucky. sort of a. Uh, a disturber of family dinner tables when at some point they'll be like you Riley you're you can find to be a socialist but do you have to be a Marxist (laughs) (laughs) and I'm like well yeah it's kind of part of it um anyway uh thank you very much for having me on this lovely uh fine podcast of yours where we're going to talk about some fucking books yeah well a book singular Um, yes well, I mean, although, well, actually, I think we could say realistically we're talking about some books because this book is about the writing of many other books. No, we're not going to talk about any other books except this one. It, this is an objective uh, review of this book. We're going to talk about uh, page size, um, <laughs> clarity of the ink. It's gonna you know, be, I was, um, was going to say the, the feel of the paper was like Verso has outdone themselves. On, oh, on Verso, the, top on the, on quality the paper, paper all the way. Like, of course. Zero books can, like, just eat a dick, because this is great yeah. quality paper. Well, that, that's the thing. I am actually currently 
I'm I'm currently on a on a reread of um of capitalist realism. I was going to mention that one later because uh, that's I think kind of important. Well, could be important. We could call it important. Oh yeah, I mean I I mean I was um I was gonna I was I mean I was always gonna talk about I mean I, I actually have a contract uh with um with 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 the estate of Mark Fisher that I have to bring up at least one of his writings on every podcast him ever on, just so when someone listens to it I can restate that I thought Vampire Castle was actually making a pretty good point and then oh, all of Twitter can yes. come and yell at me. No. Oh shit! Is that what this show's gonna be about now? Are yeah, we gonna put yeah, down Grand It's just gonna be a call out now. We're just gonna oh. prove that you're not truly woke. We did call. We we intended to do a podcast, and instead we just did call out culture. Yeah. Although I, I'll tell you this much: I know that I'm doing an, an an excellent job of bringing the trash future ethos to this show because we're just getting distracted <laughs> instead of oh, op- yeah. opening There's the show. That's actually something I've been kind of regretting with my uh, previous interviews because they've been mostly uh, writer writers, uh-huh. and uh, they they just get straight to the point because they're selling the product. But uh, yeah, we, we could we could riff for another three oh, hours. Oh yeah, I mean, I will riff forever. <laughs> this is this is the problem. I, I will I will just I'll, I think it's I mean I, I this is not a good quality. I think it's because I have a debilitating need for attention. <laughs> I will just I'll, I'll just go. Same uh, it's forever. Um, but yes, okay. So we're going to talk about the nice, the the nice Mark Fisher book, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and not his problematic article that I still think is pretty okay. I like it too, but you know, yes. I can't say that. Oh uh, no, uh, I I felt very good. I caused my first my first ever Twitter firestorm um, when someone asked me a curious cat question because um, I was hanging out with some of the um, some of the people from right around Navarra. And someone asked me a curious cat question, like, "Oh, you're hanging out with like these people? I bet you're all talking about how much you love the Vampire Castle essay." And I was like, uh, "Yeah, that did come up, and yes, I am a fan of it." And then that got retweeted, and then, like, just if you searched that term over the next 24 hours, all of Twitter was either people expressing very, very strong opinions about the content of the essay or expressing very, very exasperated opinions that it was being discussed again. And I was like, I, I reached out and touched some people's lives by making them just a little bit dumber for a day. Oh, good. Oh, just for the, the folks at home who aren't aware of this vampire castle, it's a, give, give it like a 30-second uh, synopsis of it. Yeah, okay, so... I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, obviously. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's decent. Basically... So Mark Fisher was a sort of initially blogger turned writer and activist um, in, in professor in the UK uh, who was sort of very sort of active in the years from like in the sort of the 2000s up until his untimely uh, death in 2013. Um, but what he wrote was a um, the Vampire Castle was about the way he saw left organizing spaces treated as kind of a church where it was all where sort of identity identity politics over class politics was taken so seriously that it was used as a way to silence lots of people and he says it was a combination of the priest's desire to excommunicate with the academic's desire to be the first to point out something wrong and the hipster's desire to be in the in crowd and so rather than being sort of fun and full of life and celebratory, it was a dour, miserable place that nobody really wanted to be in. And like, so wait, are you quoting that, that from memory? 
because yes. I can't even quote my own phone number from memory. <laughs> I am I am quoting a passage of that essay from memory. Yes. <laughs> nice. I, I have this argument frequently is why. Um, yeah. And so and it's kind oh, of yeah, good. You mentioned a, a church thing because that's I haven't actually read the article, but there was a Jacobin piece that ignited a similar firestorm just it, this weekend. I don't think it was uh, a Jacobin piece. I think it I was. Think it was isn't it? No, that that was the Brexit Jacobin piece that ignited a firestorm. This was some blogger. Um, it just got shared by a Jacobin writer. Oh, and the right, thing is, okay, yeah, I've only seen like the the tweets about it, so it's all second yeah. stuff for me. Well, it's the it's it's one of these things where it's got like I actually read the article, and the article is actually not great, but that one line does I think encapsulate like a true and proper statement about left politics it's not supposed to be a church but it is supposed to be concerned with like democratizing power um mm. this this guy who wrote this article took it to mean like you know if someone uses ableist language don't call them out because workers use ableist language and it's like well a not all workers do b why are we still doing it c i mean yeah if you get called out just stop no one should be defending your right to do that but anyway that's slightly beside the point mm-hmm. um where the um what with in the vampire castle essay, uh, what he was really arguing was that the left needs to be a fun place, and that when it's like a vampire castle, it's somewhere where if you put one foot wrong, you're kind of whisked away into sort of irrelevance or whatever by a group of uh, in crowders who are all equally terrified of one another. Um, and I think that, you know, one good thing is I think in the, la- in the last few years, the left has gotten really good at getting a lot more fun. Mm, yeah, definitely. And uh, there's some pretty obvious culprits for that. But um, <laughs> Yeah, us. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can't, you can't give too much, but too little credit to the Chapo guys for doing that. They're, they kind of... They kind of broke a few boundaries there, so that that was that's good of them. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, and thanks to everyone on. Uh, I, oh yeah, this this is a good opportunity to introduce uh, Trash Future. It has been described on Reddit multiple times as either British Chapo or Diet Chapo. <laughs> so do you know there's a there's a British cum town. It's called um, uh, Cummington on Thames, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's three guys just calling each other gay lords throughout ninety minutes. It's got a oh, wonderful. It's really good, yeah. Let's check it out. It's got like eight grand on uh, Patreon now. Oh, of course. Uh, Coming to non-tens. No, the, the front, there, there are definitely like, there are there are lots of there, there's there are some fucking shitty town names in 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 England. Like I always just think of Scunthorpe. Oh yeah, Scunthorpe's like a good one. Or, or Grimsby. It's got Grim in the name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Come on, guys. Try harder. But anyway. That kind of uh, Vampire Castle stuff kind of brings us to Grand Hotel Abyss, because I think a lot of Mark Fisher's stuff, but the Vampire Castle and Capitalist Realism in particular, is about the kind of same thing that Frankfurt School were talking about. Why hasn't communism won yet? Like, what, what's gone wrong? If Karl Marx worked this stuff all out in the 19th century, what, why, is, why are we still having these same conversations hundreds of years later? And uh, the Frankfurt School have some interesting ideas about that. I'm not 100% sold on all of them, but I'm 100% sold that they're smart ideas and that they deserve to be discussed and read and thought about. But um, 
why don't we go into Grand Hotel Abyss? Hell yeah. Oh, that wasn't a pun. That wasn't like, was, uh, let's was go really, into the Grand Hotel. But, yeah, I was uh, really, I was really good at, uh, excited to do a, um, try and find a, uh, a bellhop bell on the online, um, a sound effect that I, I could have done uh, just there. But that would require me buying a soundboard. Uh, yeah, so yeah, instead, I'll just in. do it's a I'll do a roundabout referential, <laughs> anti joke about it. Good job, and I'll I'll ruin your anti joke by just dubbing one in, and uh, <laughs> your joke will become really bizarre, and it'll just become even worse. It'll just become a whole episode of Tim and Eric. It'll just just be like <laughs> utter this nonsense. This is violence. This is violence now. Yeah, that's that's how what we do. It's called death sentence. You're expecting. Hmm. Uh, okay, so. The Frankfurt School. Who were they? What's their deal? What's their bag? Well, um, the, uh, the 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 well, I guess they just providing a a slight a slight summary, I guess, because I think we did just leap into talking about the Frankfurt School without saying yep. why. Um, the Gr- Grand Hotel Abyss is a book that talks about the lives of these. Um, sort of 20th century, primarily 20th century, late 19th century a bit, mostly 20th century, um, Marxist and sort of getting to post-Marxist a little bit, uh, scholars um, called the Frankfurt, they're referred to as the Frankfurt School. And these were guys whose names you've probably heard before. These were guys like um, uh, uh, Horkheimer Adorno, Marcuse, um, Eric Fromm, like, and what they were was they had coalesced in um, around this Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt that was tech re- slightly related to but technically separate from uh, the University of Frankfurt, where what they were trying to do was an- was understand why why Germany never really had a proper revolution, why. And and as they went on, especially because most of their writing they were doing sort of in the... The school was established in the 20s, and a lot of their writing sort of really started taking off in the late 20s and 30s. Um, they were sort of wondering, well, why, why is fascism on the rise in Germany? Uh, why has there been no revolution? And can we trust the working class to understand their interests and um, hold off Hitler? And unfortunately, we know that Hitler was not held off, um, and so on. But so that gives, and this is going to come up again and again, the Frankfurt School's research, a little bit of a kind of almost a somber bent because it's research about failure, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also must be noted and it, it cannot, that the Frankfurt School uh, were all Jewish. Or, yeah, I think they were... All of them were Jewish. Uh, maybe uh, Habermas wasn't. wasn't if you, Habermas if you wasn't, but him. he comes. He comes later. I mean, mm-hmm. the original, my, the original, the original bros, the original band, mm-hmm. um, and and they're a sort of associated acts like Walter Benjamin, who wasn't ever really a part of the. I don't think he was a part of the school. He was just sort of friends with everyone in it. Mm-hmm. But regardless, they were all, they were all or basically all Jewish, and it was. The, and and so they were, their lot the, the whole project was sort of at once defined and shattered uh, by the very rise of fascism it sought to explain. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, was that quote? So I'm gonna probably have to yeah, cut go for some of this because I'm gonna be looking for a quote about uh, 
from Adorno. You don't have it committed to memory, do you? He essentially says, and this is writing after um, after World War Two, that uh, Hitler's given people no choice but to think about why Auschwitz happened and make sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, that's mangling of the quote, but um, that post-war became kind of a massive focus for them and a hell of a lot of other people as well in all sorts of um, areas from religion to politics, economics to feminism and so on. But, uh, yeah. And if this sounds like heady stuff, um, the book itself is so readable. It's just really uh, nice, easy introduction to this stuff. I could like recommend this to a fairly smart teenager who could get started on these topics because it's written in just breezy, funny, sarcastic way. And I, I've never actually done anything with Habermas before because I kind of heard he was big into the EU and just generally quite neoliberally. Mm -hmm. But uh, gave me a good introduction to him. And uh, he's a pretty difficult guy to get into. So. I now feel I can wing my way in uh, conversations about him. But um, well, I think let's the get back important to thing to I say the important thing to remember is that ultimately this book one of the reasons for what you're talking about, right, is that this book is a piece of biography, um, sort of more than necessarily a theoretical exponent. Hmm. Um, you know, it's but it's a biography equally of um, of these of these individual people. And it's also a biography, I think, of the um, of the institution itself and where its focuses were. So it, that's why I think it's so wonderful is that it sort of flits between um, intellectual biography and human biography and institutional biography um, to give you an idea of the trajectory of this whole thing through time. Hmm, yeah, I, it's it'll go from discussing something difficult like uh, Adorno's negative dialectics to Adorno hanging out with Charlie Chaplin in Los Angeles, <laughs> which he did, which is amazing. And it's pretty, another thing I really like, it's pretty clear who uh, Stuart Jeffries likes and <laughs> doesn't like here. Uh, he's a big fan of Walter Benjamin. Uh, he hates Adorno. I think he respects him intellectually, but hates him well, mostly as a person, but kind of doesn't give a whole lot of credit to his ideas. Uh, he seems to think that Adorno was motivated by... I, I think he, he, he seems to see Adorno as kind of a hipster. Kind of, yeah. A, a hipster elitist, to use the yeah. full term. He's, I think he uses the term elitist on Adorno a few times here, and his ideas and on negative dialectics as a, as a book and idea. He's, uh, yeah, he... And uh, at the end of the book, spoilers, um, Adorno dies because he saw tits. And it's, uh, Buddy, you're telling me. Yeah, I know. It's a constant worry to all of us uh -huh. that we may someday come in contact with tits and die a week later. You know, for uh, my own safety, I've actually never met my girlfriend. That's the way to do it. Uh, but how about we talk about Walter Benjamin? Because he seems oh, yeah. to be a nice guy. I'm a, I'm a huge, I'm a big. Um, what would that be? It's you're you're a believer. 
uh, if you're a fan of Walter Benjamin. Ben- um, Benjamite? Yeah, I'm a Benjamite. I'm a huge Benjamite. Okay, I'm, coin uh, phrase. I'm, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm eating the dust under It's supposed to be pronounced Walter be- be- Benjamin? Well, Benjamin, it's, like it's got a Y. Oh yeah. Um, okay, we're just gonna say Benjamin. So yeah, tell us, tell us the folks at home a little more about Walter Benjamin. So Walter Benjamin's an interesting character because he's, um, I think, well, he's a little older than the rest of them. Um, he was sort of a little bit of an outsider, um, but like like the rest of this uh, merry bunch, he was a um, a, a German Jewish. Uh, so intellectual, uh, the son of a uh, wealthy of a wealthy merchant, um, he was always he was always sort of very very bookish. Um, I think uh, Jeffries compares him sort of relatively frequently to Marcel Proust. Mm, um, yeah, a lot of Proust. And yeah, yeah. There's a lot of Proust at the beginning, and and you know it's in fact I think on um. On, on a commie book club episode, I end, I actually do talk about Benjamin and Proust in the same sentence. Like they're people who definitely, yeah, I that, yeah, yeah, they're people who definitely sort of have a lot of crossover of interest, because Walter Benjamin, he was interested in living this life of, not necessarily of leisure, but certainly a life of letters, where he basically wanted his father's wealth, and it did for much of his life. He wanted his father's wealth to kind of provide for his ability to pursue study that wouldn't be constrained by the market. And Mm. what he was very interested in, uh, Walter Benjamin, was he was he was he had he was a real focus on aesthetics um, uh, and sort of uh, beauty and art in particular. Um, I'm jumping around a little bit. Uh, because I think his most famous work is probably the Arcades Project, which was always unfinished, which was of just him, his journals, his notes, more or less, of him strolling around through the kind of um, decayed shopping arcades of Paris and thinking about sort of this, the decay of this sort of open and accessible space um, where, you know, you could sort of just walk and exist in public, but... um, uh, but also that was sort of inherently capitalistic. Um, my favorite work by by Benjamin is the work of art in an age of mechanical reproduction, mm, yeah. um, which is, I think, relatively one of his other sort of very well-known ones. In fact, I'm, I'm working on an article right now where I'm using his uh, The Storyteller. Um, but the work of art in an age of mechanical reproduction is probably in fact, I, re- I take it back about the arcades being the more important one. I think this is still probably the most important. Where I was going to say, but you're in a flow, so I didn't yeah. want to interrupt you. Yeah, the the arcades is it's, it's still a it's still an important book, but yeah, this the but um, yeah, the work of art in an age of mechanical reproduction is probably more important. Um, and this is like I said, this is this is a book about authors, so it's a book in many ways about many books and many articles and stuff. And this was Benj- Benjamin trying to understand. Um, if you ask yourself what is the difference between a um, the sound of Van Gogh's Starry Night for example and a perfect copy of Van Gogh's Starry Night if the copy is perfect enough what is the difference and you know he, he has, because he has to explain like we feel this way right Mm. And that there is this idea that he coins sort of called aura. Because remember, he's a Marxist. He's thinking about this in class terms. Um, and he thinks that 
the original uh, Starry Night has this connection to a time and place that makes it sort of relatively exclusive. But by holding the original of Starry Night with its aura, you, the owner, gets to decide what is a legitimate copy and what is a forgery. And so it's a way of restricting the kind of beneficial um, and salutary uh, and also economic benefits of beautiful things to a very small class of people. So he yeah. was actually, uh, no, a general trend among the Frankfurt School theorists was a real suspicion of, um, of sort of modernity and a real suspicion of modern culture. Um, in fact, I think we're going to come to this later on with one of my other favorite books, The Dialectic of Enlightenment. But mm. yeah. um, Benjamin was actually one of the few members of the Frankfurt School who was not utopian, but hopeful. Because mm. in the work of art in an age of mechanical reproduction, he said that actually when you make, he thought that photography was the first truly radical and democratizable art form because it was, it is made, it is the, it is, it is, it is made in an instant and made specifically to be copied. So it's very difficult to say, well, this is the definitive photograph of this thing because you can just keep printing off from the negative. You know, mm -hmm. you can't display the negatives. The negative has very little inherent value. So, I mean, very little has any inherent value. We're all Marxists here, but still. <laughs> um, and so he sees this as sort of very democratizing because all of a sudden, you sort of strip away this sort of restrictive and elitist cap quality of the aura, and instead you can sort of create this all at once. Now, the problem is, and I think, I think this, this essay is also where he points out um, his, uh, another famous statement of his that fascism is the introduction of the aesthetic to politics, mm -hmm. um, which is a statement about how, at the same time, the sort of mass creation of aesthetic images can be used to organize the working class around, um, and we we're probably all familiar with a lot of this from the last couple of years in sort of the, uh, the transatlantic world, but where you can use images of the glorious, daring, and dangerous nation, the kind of crisp, crisply uniformed soldiers marching in front of the square, the sort of the, the, the sort of the the, and the sort of soaring um, excitement you can feel from being um, forbidden and breaking territory and so on, um, that you can organize the working classes around those feelings as opposed to around their material interests. And if you can organize the working class around the aesthetic of glory, for example, you just invented fascism. Yep. <laughs> um, and so the, um, the, the essay is really interesting because it, it, it holds these, these things in tension. Uh, but this is a podcast about Grand Hotel Abyss, uh, not um, the work of art in Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Um, I think that's just a very, that's a very sort of quick introduction to sort of uh, Benjamin's thinking and some of, some of the things he wrote and thought about. Some of the things, to be honest, I still read and, and think about quite a bit. No, that's it. No, that's good. That's in, like important stuff to, uh, to realize about yeah. his work and it's his big book and his big ideas. Um, and what comes in later when he's kind of semi-clashing with Adorno and mm. um, who, like you said, in ne uh, Dialectic of Enlightenment and Negative Dialectics is uh, the total opposite. He mm -hmm. uh, despises modern art and reprodu reproductions and film and jazz and uh, 
everything popular. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to tell what he does like. He, um, he's well, like one of those. Exact- um, as you say, that's exactly actually sort of where the title, that's a little bit where the title comes from, right? Hmm. Um, which is towards the very beginning, which is that the Frankfurt School theorists were criticized as um, being sort of so, so immersed in critique and so demoralized by the failure of, um, by the failure of sort of Marx's predictions to come true in Germany, by the failure of a socialist revolution in Germany, that instead they what they did is they sort of ensconced themselves in this grand in this theoretical grand hotel where they were kind of comfortably and quite often correctly um, looking at and trying to understand the cultural products of of their age but sort of resigning themselves to the fact that you were defeated I mean mm-hmm. they are a, they are a pessimistic bunch at base they believe like and so they're like they're like they're a pa- they're they're a, their take on culture is I think sort of notably opposite to is is similar to but u- ultimately kind of opposite from that of like Gramsci right where they don't think it's really possible to attain any kind of of hegemonic cultural control they don't think that that's that that's even doable they just sort of see capitalism as kind of imminently controlling everything about everyone's lives through. Um, through sort of through and, and through like cultural products so in, in ways that we'll get into but um, that it's it, it's sort of so helpless and yeah and so that's why they're overlooking this abyss because they're right and they're right by writing beautifully and they are sort of very very rarefied but there's what can you do you know a lot of a lot of what they're writing especially the dialectic of enlightenment is a little bit of a surrender. Mm. Yeah, it, it is. And later in the book where uh, Eric Fromm is kind of engaging in utopian thought a little bit, and it's hardly utopian thoughts by today's standards. It's, uh, it wouldn't be nice if people fucked more. It, <laughs> but um, more or less, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. Uh, yeah, he um, that pisses people off. He's pretty, he gets uh, called out on that one by Adorno and by a bunch of other people because they've given up on any kind of utopian thought. And uh, yeah, Walter Benjamin didn't. He like he had his arcades were his utopia. Or well, when he was uh, was it um, was it they go to his niece in South of France and he's like Marseille, the hash. city he loved so much. Marseille, Marseille, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was the, well, it was, and, the uh, it was the sort of war, it was the sort of um, he thought that sort of Marseille, he w- he loved this idea of like liberation from the kind of shackled domains of sort of orderly and um and like Haussmannian Parisian uh, and sort of uh, sort of northern French life when he was traveling through France, he he hated all of these sort of quite manicured on purpose cities. He loved this idea that sort of Marseille was this spontaneous outburst of just human human activity at its most unconstrained um, and he thought that was that more sort of authentic because this idea of authenticity comes up again and again and again in all of and all of the Frankfurt school's work and you can see the roots of that idea in Benjamin's experience of Marseille talking about kind of the the silks and the hash bars I mean yeah it's oriental it is orientalizing to be fair 
but everything from the kind of the North African influence to the sort of work to the sort of working class nature of its sort of of its sailordom uh, of its sort of status as a, as a port town, it's that the the fact that it was sort of free of the sort of ex of the highly kind of mannered and set down instrumentalized social codes of the sort of more um, I guess you could say classy North meant that to him it was infinitely more worthwhile. It kind of reminded me a little of. Um William Burroughs, uh, the in Naked Lunch, he has Interzone, uh, another kind of North African influenced, uh, like multicultural town where everyone's just high all the time and having weird sex, and that's his utopia. And that paging Eric from, yeah, and I was kind of counterposed to the manicured lawns and white picket fences of nineteen fifties America, and. Uh, most people will not take anything of Burroughs to be utopian, but he, he does actually, it does actually tons of utopian stuff in Burroughs, it's, uh, especially in his later stuff, where he's talking about real-life pirate utopias, which are a subject that is endlessly fascinating to me. But I'll do a pirate utopia. That. I'll do a pirate utopia episode some other time. It'll be about six hours long. It'll be like one of those uh, hardcore history shows or something. Hell yes. But, um, let's do, uh, let's take a break to listen to some music. Uh, we don't actually have to listen to music, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I'm going to put in some music here. It's going to be by, uh, some utopians. So a band called Is Iskra from British Columbia. They're like pretty much the preeminent anarcho punk metal band in Canada right now. They're really fucking good they've never sold out uh they cannot sell out um and uh, this is one of their songs it's called predator drone mq1 it's off their album uh ruins from 
No, I mean, that's, I mean, to be honest, a band that can never sell out is very, very Frankfurt school. <laughs> yeah, that, it would be uh, kind of interesting to talk about punk, and uh, I don't think punk really comes up in this. But, no, uh, well, they're too, they're sort of, I mean, their main, well, here's the weird thing, right? Their main problem is with jazz, but a lot mm. of their early opinions on jazz were like, the way jazz was played in Germany in the 20s, which was like basically chamber music. So it was yeah, very it was, uh, sort of set down in like marches. It wasn't the sort of freewheeling, um, it, it wasn't the kind of freewheeling American jazz that we might know, mm, uh, be yeah. more familiar with. Yeah, I mean, if these guys had seen like Charlie Parker playing a basement in Paris, then uh, I think they'd have very different opinions about jazz. Although but we say I, that, but I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Oh, have oh, we cut back in yet? <laughs> Sorry? Have we cut oh, yeah, back sure. in yet? Oh, okay, yeah, very much. On. Yeah, <laughs> nice. totally cut back in. I, I, okay. Also, um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't suppose you would, um, you, would, uh, you would allow a digression into the only genre of music I truly love. Go ahead. Which but is which techno? Kind of, uh, Fucking love which kind techno. of metal is it? <laughs> oh, techno. Oh. It's, the metal, <laughs> it's the metal of, I mean, to be honest, it's the metal of electronic music. Interested in my Come opinion, on. okay, because one of, some of the things that define metal are, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know much about it, I know a little bit, but that it's highly kind of structural and very much based on kind of on sort of pressing intensity, right? But it's very structurally, yeah, so. it's, it's it's cases. it's but one of the its hallmarks is that it's quite structurally complex, right? Yeah, a lot of times. Yeah. Um, well, I think one of the interesting things about techno, and I, I mean particularly the kind of techno I listen to, which is um, very German and very minimal, um, mm -hmm. tends to be more. It, it's it's not it's no, it doesn't really it does it never has anything you might think of as ordinarily associated with electronic music. None of these sort of sort of synths and sort of quite like you know round pedestrian beats or whatever. It's based on. Um, a very strong kick drum, much like, much like metal, um, mm -hmm. and then it is based on very slow, slight progressions in instrumentations as it goes through um, sixty-four bar phrases, and it grew up um, in the sort, of, especially in like um, in in the like uh, the the gay clubs in uh, West Berlin, and then the newly unified Berlin. Um, as a kind of underground form of protest, almost protest music that was essentially trying to like imitate the sounds of industry that people felt so beaten down by. Uh, yeah. So my, my favorite, like my favorite, some of my favorite, like my favorite producer, which is, again, uh, this is a bit of a, a bit of a normie answer. <laughs> um, but uh, I, uh, my favorite is uh, Ben Clock, I think. I mean, ben I don't think Clark? I know. Ben Clock, Ben K L O C K. Um, mm -hmm. He is like the one of the pioneers of. Uh, he was one of the people. Like he was the uh, resident DJ at Bergheim. I think he still might be actually him and Marcel Detman, the resident DJs at the like the number the the original big disused power station in East Berlin. Uh, it's it's like it's 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 pretty gothy. It's sort of like it has a cathedral like atmosphere. It's very very cool. Nice. So that's how other people feel when I talk about like metal. Then is it? That's <laughs> I'm finally on the receiving end. 
of you someone finally... else's um, obscure <laughs> obsession with music. Yeah, <laughs> hurts, don't it? Yeah, yeah. Just, like just listen to Arcade Fire or something normal. Oh, come on now. Yeah, let's I, I not, can't do that to myself. Let's not say things we can't take back. <laughs> Um, uh, anyway, we were we, we were talking we were talking Frankfurt. Yeah, Frankfurt. That's also in Germany. Um, it is. It also has some great clubs. Yeah. Uh, let's do Adorno, because uh, he's an interesting chap. He yeah. is. Uh, he's what the one of these guys I've read the most of before. Um, that makes Frank sense because he's this. sort of a musicologist. Sorry. Well, it sort of makes sense because of sort of your. Sort of joint focus on uh, music as a cultural product. I guess. Uh, and Holy I shit, just did, I just t- did I just tie something together? Could be. <laughs> <laughs> did I just I make know. a fan theory? Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I've read, I, I just um, on Wagner is mm-hmm. the only like musical one that I've, I've read of his. And that was for yeah. a, a whole different project. That's a uh, Oh yeah. Well, actually, before we before we we go into into Adorno, do you mind if we just quickly sort of close out the Benjamin story? Because I think it's sort of very oh yeah, it's a well, very interesting yeah, we need one. to get to like the end of the Benjamin story. Yeah, that one that's interesting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, tragic um, but interesting. So yeah, yeah, um, keep going. What Benjamin Benjamin didn't leave Europe like the rest of his compatriots, as sort of the Nuremberg laws were getting passed. Um, so the the rest of the guys, because um, uh, Horkheimer, I think, was head of the school at this time sort of moved, to, moved them all to Geneva. And then from Geneva, they sort of moved variously, uh, sort of all filtering into the states, New York and Los Angeles mainly. Well, first New York, then Los Angeles. Mm. But Benjamin was different uh, because he, his health was poor because he was much older. Um, he didn't have as much money and he, he'd been more itinerant for longer. And so uh, he'd already left Germany uh, to go live in Italy. and. And in Paris, actually. And he never, he always went the least far distance he could to evade the Nazis, essentially. He never went all the way over. And so he went to Paris, but then they invaded France. He was like, well, shit, I have to leave France. Um, and so the uh, Horkheimer managed to secure him a uh, teaching position at, I think, Columbia University? Question mark? Yep, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was at Columbia. Uh, mm-hmm. where they had reestablished a kind of institute for social research in exile. Um, and they had then, um, and then on his way over, uh, sort of the day he was trying to cross from France into Spain, where he then had a transit visa through Portugal to get to the States, um, Franco's government had closed the border to refugees from Paris. And so imminently sort of understanding that he was about to be sent back uh, to um his death, uh, he instead, uh, in- well, it's the rumor is he injected himself with um, enough morphine to uh, kill himself and that he had a final manuscript with him in a black briefcase uh, that is now lost uh, to Never time. been found. Never been found. And that was yeah. Walter Benjamin. Everybody else, correct me if I'm wrong, everybody but Walter Benjamin um, got out of Europe. Mm, yeah. It was the only only casualty. And uh, the book um, says something I've I've never actually uh, encountered before, which is that it's possible that it wasn't suicide because his autopsy didn't show uh, 
morphine overdose. Mm. It's possible that he was killed by these like roving bands of Nazi assassins who were like whacking uh, left wingers trying to leave um, Europe. Well, it's that they were. It's it's weird. It's that um, they were working with because this was still at the time. This was still at the time of sort of. Of, of an ostensible detente between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, where um, sort of Stalinist agents were around Europe as well, sort of infiltrating these left-wing groups, then sort of handing them over to the Gestapo, because mm, yeah. these left-wing groups were seen as heretical Marxists. So because they were not Marxists in the way that Stalin was, and his party was, they were seen as about as dangerous as any other undesirable. And so it's the, these same groups that, you know, um, climbed Mount Trotsky uh, also uh, were, were hunting um, sort of rogue left-wingers uh, throughout Europe as well. Yeah, so there's a theory that it could have been, that, and they called this like the murder Illuminati or something? Yeah, I think Some, yeah the Killerati. Killerati. What do I think yeah. the murder Illuminati? That's far, far worse. <laughs> Come on, that's, that's just <laughs> the normal Illuminati. Read a book. Yeah. So that that would be cool, oh, yeah. but uh, unfortunately they don't appear in this, and um, yes, that brings us to the Frankfurt School in exile in the U.S. and this like weird uh, part of German cultural and intellectual history where all these brilliant brilliant people like um, uh, Hermann Hesse and just like a whole generation of incredible German writers and artists were all hanging out in Los Angeles, in Burbank, of all places, where the porn studios are now. And um, Adorno was there, and he hated it, and he wrote a good part of uh, Minimo Moralia when he was there, and it shows, because that's a bitter, bitter little pill of a book, and it's brilliant. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, and then they all, a, a bunch of them, were also working for uh, the OSS, which became the CIA. And that's uh, kind of the, um, I would say the root, but of how, uh, how things ended up progressing for the school. There was a lot more kind of compromise after the war, on, for certain ones of them, at least. Plenty of them became, you know, Adorno never changed from the moment he was born to the moment he died, but um, yeah, they, they kind of sold out a little bit. Well, it's that they were no longer really in the real sense of the term Marxists, right? Hmm. Is they yeah, got so disillusioned. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not, I think it's, it's not even that they were necessarily selling out, it's like they were it's like they almost moved beyond the capacity of selling out. They were so demoralized, I think, by this sort of, by a combination. And this is something I think to really highlight about when they came to America, is they sort of, one is of all the things they hated about sort of Europe, especially as it was sort of coming under fascist control, was this intense, top-down, almost relentless kitsch of, um, of enforced conformity and... Um, and, and if you like, uh, affirmative art, right? But when they came to America, I think they kind of, they were like, well, this is, this is not in any important way different, other than, yeah. of course, the fact that you're not, no one's trying to kill you. But culturally, 
it's it's similar. It's focused on sort of affirmativeness, and it's focused on and it's and it's inescapable, and it sort of renders everybody in in then the mass culture of 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 a large capitalist country will render stupid and passive essentially anyone who consumes it. So it's no surprise again uh, that they were sort of so dejected um, as they felt like that yes they had escaped they had escaped sort of a genuinely immediately dangerous and obviously very evil um, situation but they had ended up in something that was sort of potentially more subtly insidious Hmm. yeah I mean it's something that people still talk about Uh, I still talk about it it's why it's it's why anytime I, I sort of and with a large group of, 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 of friends and someone's like, oh, I love all the new Disney movies. I actually now no longer say this <laughs> because I like them to keep being my friends. Um, but, you know, it's, it's the first thing I always think of is, you know, like, is like Adorno and Horkheimer being like, like this, this culture. Like every, it's, it's that there is this sort of relentless tide of just infantilization um, that is that just is endemic in in, in, in this society and they could see it then and it's just con it's, I mean to pour a tank of fucking NOS into into the engine at this point in the infantilization mobile um, mm, but that, oh yeah. but they saw it as, as pervasive and unstoppable and sort of sugar coated I guess so that just to, I think that's like you really can't emphasize enough how depressed these guys were <laughs> And Adorno was hanging out with Charlie Chaplin. He sort of, uh, you know, asked him to tell a joke, do some pratfalls, just cheer up a little bit. But there's a tension there, right? Because he sees the great dictator, and he's like, well, the enforced conformity of laughter, it, it's, it's, it's like enforced conformity. It's li- the, the enforced conformity of laughter, at this, of everybody agreeing to laugh at the same thing and sort of share that idea is like the enforced conformity of everyone being forced to salute the same thing, right? Mm. Like, he sees, and that's what I mean, so that's why there's sort of these, because the Frankfurt School is really all about sort of holding these opposite ideas in tension, and, tr- and, and no matter who you are, whether it's Walter Benjamin sort of struggling with the idea of whether um, reproducible art is fascistic or liberatory, right? Or whether it is Adorno hanging out with Charlie Chaplin, a man whose movies... He, a man who, a man whose very craft he thinks of as uh, unacceptably sort of um, conformist, right? And yeah, it's, says, it's all uh, about these tensions. It says, uh, in the false society, laughter is a, is a disease which has attacked happiness and is drawing it into its worthless totality. And then um, Stuart Jeffries takes like a paragraph to call Hibbert humorless scold. <laughs> uh, I mean, he's not entirely wrong, but then again, yeah, neither is Adorno. Problem, Adorno's he's not like, entirely wrong either. He's just, it's just a little bit difficult to accept. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, well, like I keep saying, it's a debate we're still having. Can you go watch The Avengers this weekend and still call yourself a Marxist? Can, and at one end, there's, you know, fuck everything, no, um, there's no uh, good consumption under capitalism, so whatever. And on the other hand, you've got people on the internet who say you can't have a fidget spinner because it's not a worker or something. I don't know. Stop subtweeting Phil Greaves on your podcast. I, I'm going to have to bleep that because his, his people are everywhere. <laughs> um, didn't you know it's all fash? 
Yeah, um, nice I think. I mean, I think that's look. I think the beep take is an oversimplified one. Um, mm. I think that I I choose. I guess you could say. I don't know whether I choose not to enjoy the Avengers or just I have been kind of constituted. I have, through kind of thinking about this stuff, have been constituted in such a way that I would just enjoy other stuff more. You know, um, I think there is there's a reading of Adorno that just makes you an un, and especially Adorno and Horkheimer, um, because my familiarity with them isn't really isn't so much through um, negative dialectic or minima moralia. It's mainly through the dialectic of enlightenment, which I've used in a lot of my writing in the past. Um, I guess both as sort of a formerly a professional writer and currently a sort of occasional uh, newspaper and magazine writer, um, is, is that the worst, the worst reading of Adorno and Horkheimer, uh, the dialectic of enlightenment, which we've kind of alluded to, it sort of talks mm. about the culture industry and sort of infantilization and passivity um, and all this and, and, and why, you know, cultural products sort of tend to sameness over time. You know, it's like the Avengers. It's one superhero movie is great and now it's every, super, every movie is a superhero movie. Mm. Um, the 20 top grossing films of the last 10 years, I think all except um, La La Land were remakes, sequels, spinoffs or whatever. Um, you know, so it's, it's basically right. But the worst reading of the dialectic of enlightenment is basically, oh, I'm going to read this book. I have good taste because it's better than everyone else who likes all this trash. Um, you know, and that the, the worst reading of the dialectic of enlightenment is about the quality of cultural products under late capitalism. Um, that is to say, the quality as a piece of art, as opposed to, I think, the good reading of the dialectic of enlightenment, which is about the quality as in the qualities of art created under capitalism, which is that it is fundamentally a product and what it's designed to do and so on and so on. And I think the best reading of the dialectic of enlightenment makes you want to produce your own things. The mm -hmm. best reading makes you want to assert cultural independence from, um, you might say, people who are trying to make you be passive um, and to, uh, consumers of culture who are trying to sort of render your life capable of being lived by more or less anyone. Um, by sort of instead taking space for yourself and making something of your own unconnected to the market. And I think in general, that's um, a lot of the, because a lot of the Frankfurt School readings, especially Adorno and Horkheimer, and especially Adorno, are so concerned with kind of authenticity and cultural production to the point where they almost decouple themselves from, this is why we say that they're sort of almost post-Marxist, is that they almost decouple themselves from this idea of the economic base and they're thinking so closely about the superstructure because they're thinking so closely about the import about aesthetics as an import as a s separately important category and authenticity as an important category of aesthetics um, that you know you 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 are eventually pushed that there's nothing that you can do but um, create your own thing and engage with others who create their own things and make and appreciate stuff together amongst yourselves as opposed to you know passively consuming from above um, this is right. I guess that's a sl I guess that's almost a slight section on why the Frankfurt School is important to me and why I like <laughs> this book yeah, no, <laughs> Sorry, I'm totally obliterating the structure of your show I apologize no, it, it, there's no structure to obliterate um, <laughs> it, it, I, what you say kind of jives with something I've that's come up on the show before um, in before it was in reference to problematic media but mm -hmm. uh, 
that you know there's plenty of problematic stuff out there in all different ways whether it's uh, identity politics uh, ways or uh, the way it's produced and the economics of it and yeah the only real way is to make your own shit and if you can't make your own stuff then think about the stuff that is there in a in a better and more informed way uh, which is kind of what critical theory allows you to do it gives you all these tools for not being a passive consumer and uh so let's so what does um, just sort of folks at home what does it, the enlightenment have to do with the dialectic of enlightenment you know that's that's that that's very interesting um, is Adorno and Horkheimer see okay the enlightenment was supposed to liberate humanity from the sort of irrational structures of sort of the dark ages of myth, of myth of myth and feudalism and stuff, right? We were going to free ourselves from our old erroneous beliefs by applying the scientific method um, to and and sort of pure reason, and we were going to sort of take control of our lives from our ancestors, more or less. Um, you know that the king's self-proclaimed divine right to rule um, is is undermined by the fact that we can say, well, that's based on based on some connection to God, but we've, we, th using science, we've made God increasingly unnecessary. So then, King, why are you necessary? What is your right to rule? And so on. But that was the fundamental premise of the Enlightenment as it saw itself. However, the um, Adorno and Horkheimer, being good dialecticians, uh, were like, well, yes, of course, maybe. Um, but like any good dialectician said, but also <laughs> this other thing where these ideas of sort of rationality, positivism, this idea that we can sort of through study, um, we can turn the world into a more rational place actually became its own instrument of oppression. Um, and, and, that, and that all of a sudden we, be, we found ourselves in service of the very tools that were meant that we did that we built to throw off the shackles of um, of the past and so we find it so we find ourselves in a position where liberated from the authority of the king um, we now have all of the language and concepts we need to create the authority of the hierarchical firm and then we have the sort of we have people who are ostensibly free and have the language of political freedom lined up against sort of um, lined up in factories uh, sort of do doing doing the work that is required of them by um, sort of rationally built and designed machines and so we're sort of looking at and though that's the thing the dialectic of enlightenment isn't entirely about the culture industry I should do mm -hmm. slight digression here um, the culture industry is merely I think probably the most important and popular chapter in the dialectic of enlightenment in the book um, but rather, I, I digressed. Any case, um, so yeah, that's that's essentially where we get the title. Is we're saying, well, we've been just we we freed ourselves with rationality, but we've been trapped now once again uh, by these very same tools we built to free ourselves. Yeah, there's a pretty big part in here on uh, Taylorism and Fordism in uh, factories. Yeah, and there's 
for a long time through um, 50s and 60s, uh, the Frankfurt guys were having these debates with uh, logical positivists in various universities. There's uh, Richard Rorty turns up. There's there's a whole lot in here about the about the problems with positivism, and it's a uh, because positivism sounds nice, doesn't it? Like. Mm. Well, so this, is w- this is when Adorno especially well it was with the pragmatists but this is also especially when Adorno was at Merton right hmm, yeah 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 and uh, yeah Adorno was came out swinging against these guys and he was um, I don't know if I, I think there's a section where he um, where uh, Jeffries talks about some of these debates he's having and basically said Adorno. Well, there is. It's it's that Adorno Adorno was brilliant, but he was brilliant in German, and he was in he was there at, at Merton and in Oxford, sort of hiding out from um, from the Nazis, sort of. And so he knew what he wanted to say, um, but he was never able to fully articulate it. So he found Oxford to be very frustrating, which yeah. uh, I can certainly sympathize with. <laughs> you former Oxford person? Yeah, uh, that's me. Go UEA. Yeah. I only got one good course, but that's the one I did. Um, so let's. I know you didn't read the, the latter part of the book, but um, I think we could. I think we could talk about this. Yeah, of course. Um, why care about these dead, sad, angry dudes today? What does critical theory still have to teach us? And these guys in particular, um, because to be honest, I actually kind of think what you what these sad old mainly dead dudes have to teach us, um, and like uh, like especially just uh, noting like this this the latter halves of the as the twentieth century wears on. The reason I wanted to, I, I want to focus on the sort of opening two thirds of the book is as the twentieth century wears on, they increasingly sound more and more like cranks, mm, yeah. <laughs> um, a little bit. Um, because they are sort of contemplating, they were all read, they were at their best contemplating a world they don't understand, but as it moves further and further away from them, their criticism, is, I think, becomes a little less sensical. And then Habermas comes up, he's a little bit younger, I mean, he's still old now, he's like a billion years old now. Um, oh God, someone's going to tell me about some brilliant, incisive thing written by someone from the Frankfurt School in like 1979, and I'm going to feel like <laughs> a total idiot. Um, <laughs> but... I think a lot of their a lot of the work that they wrote that was personally important to me um, came from the middle of the twentieth century, um, uh, so that's why I, sort of I focus on that bit. Um, but what's what's important about it now? I think you already touched on, which is that thinking in terms of critical theory allows you. I actually think to just even if it's not political, right? A lot because a lot of critical theory is politically important and is a lot of uh, politics is important to critical theory and critical theory may indeed be of somewhat importance to politics um in as much as it, it, if if to extent to you can say to borrow a line from steve bannon that politics is downstream from culture mm-hmm. it, maybe it is a little bit who knows yeah. um but the um the important thing is that i think it allows you to be a more switched on and Almost, it, there's almost a hedonic effect to it, right? Like, it allows you to enjoy the culture, the, the the production of modern culture more. And if you feel a sort of a sense of certain emptiness um, that confronts you as you sort of deal with modernity, 
um, it, it gives you a language to sort of articulate and understand why that might be. Um, and it gives you a way to do it without necessarily just being an elitist, uh, which I think is good because, like I said earlier, at its best, its language is not higher. It's not. It's not putting you high up in a hierarchy. It's liberatory, um, and it it sort of makes you want to share it with others. Um, at it at its best, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's why I care about these these guys today. That and because also, like, like I, a lot of the articles I tend to write, or at least some of them, uh, tend to be sort of culturally critical. Um, uh, they're very very useful <laughs> as a, as a, as a source <laughs> um, as well. But what what what's your what's your what's your take? That's mine, and my take is basically okay. a repurposed and elongated version of yours. <laughs> no, I no that is that is a massively important thing, and. Uh, I'd say just to add to that is that at the very start of the show we mentioned Mark Fisher and um, capitalist realism and Vampire Castle and all that business and, and a lot of stuff in a similar vein, probably way more than, than I know and a lot of it's on like uh, Zero Books who published Mark Fisher and uh, Verso who published Stuart Jeffries and we're still, um, we're still talking about the same basic question which is that why why did why is there only well I say there's only one major big socialist country in the world and that's China but they're not very socialist and they're very big but why did why is there no communism why aren't we living in fully luxury gay space communities on the moon right now because everything is there it's all in place people are deeply miserable with capitalism Everyone I talk to, uh, even if they're not politically sophisticated, no one likes the government or the media or culture. Uh, even when I was in the Avengers over the weekend, there were kids like 15 years old behind me just rolling their eyes at the ending because they already know that, I'm going to spoil the Avengers, that all the deaths that happen in there have been nullified by business interests because you're not going to kill Spider-Man um, yeah everyone is in sort of similar place of why isn't a better world since a better world is possible why hasn't it happened yet and um, yeah seeing these guys um, deal with that almost a hundred years ago and still be dealing with it in uh, stuff like Mark Fisher's work and tons of stuff is um, it's important. Uh, hopefully, you know, these can be a few of the giants we can stand on the shoulders of to actually figure some shit out. And um, yeah, that's that's basically why I think these guys are important because we haven't answered their questions yet. Uh, I think that's yeah. Any of that that's absolutely sense? right. Yeah, that, I think it completely makes sense because I think maybe that's why sort of we history sort of always sees them as pessimists is because they never really answered the f- fully answered these questions, but they did set out the problem. They mm-hmm. did sort of show that the sort of that that ideology and culture are much more than just epiphenomenal of politics. That they have some power to them. I think. Yeah, and that they're they are important, and that political questions can and political questions like 
we know that capitalism is unsustainable. How does it con- continue to, to borrow a term from Noam Chomsky, manufacture consent? Hmm. Um, and I think that's a, a lot. How, what, what, what are the things, what are the tricks that it will pull to sort of stay alive past its sell-by date? Um, and that's one of the things that the Frankfurt School are excellent at doing. The important thing, I guess, is to, when reading them, when reading sort of either when reading about them, so like when reading Stuart Jeffrey's book, or when reading their books themselves, is not to allow yourself to become demoralized and just to remember that these guys are setting out problems. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, once we find the solution, uh, then I'm going to have a great time uh, living in my commune on the moon. Yeah. We're just going to be, you know, nude and zero G. It's going to be great. <laughs> just floated everywhere. <laughs> Eric Fromm, where'd you come from? <laughs> He's, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that we're kind of running up against time, but um, yeah, the the 60s stuff is was kind of interesting. I don't want to go back to this because mm-hmm. I think we, we we capped this off. But the the stuff uh, from was written, writing about in the 60s that informed like the new left and almost hippie culture. Uh, Wilhelm Reich is in this. He was putatively a part of the institute uh, until he started uh, to shoot uh, UFOs with his orgasms <laughs> and um, yeah the, the 60s is a really fascinating period for these guys so yeah. but to well, get that all, you're going to have to actually go read the book so I'm not going to talk about <laughs> well, it it's, it's, it's all fascinating I just I always saw the most important bits as sort of being between sort of 1920 and, and the 50s for it's, me anyway do you think there's parallels between then and now, apart from the, you know, the continued disappointment in yeah. not having luxury gay space communism? Uh, I mean, it's tempting to draw parallels. I think that culture really never stopped being as kitsch. Um, I think that one of the ways to understand, if you're thinking about late stage, like the, th- the way the Frankfurt School is sort of good for understanding late stage capitalism, I think is when you think about the intrusion of the market into more and more areas of life, making them sort of become more at at once rational, but rational for what end, you know? Rational just means the arrangement of of, of resources or premises even to get a particular outcome, right? Mm -hmm. That's all it really means. Um, And so as as capital sort of invades more and more... places of your life now that it's run out of other places in the world to invade right like you can you can think in terms of the frankfurt school of things getting dumber as (laughs) they are more quote-unquote enlightened um and so it's impossible to tell a story where the main character is at any risk of death because that's a bad that's bad business (laughs) to have spider-man be permanently dead and so and 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 that's and that's late capitalism because the ra- because of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall it must it must find the lo- lo- market logic must expand um and so spider-man now is immortal because which means that no story containing him will ever have any significance um which means it is increasingly stupid to get w- to get wrapped up in it because he'll n- he can never die but he can never be truly definitively born and nothing could ever happen to him that cannot be reversed if the market changes direction, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, 
and I think that the Frankfurt School gives us a, an excellent sort of language to understand why that's happening. And so rather than necessarily trying to speculate on sort of political parallels between that era and now, I mean, you know, there are a lot of obvious, w I mean, there are a lot of obvious ones, you know, like, this, like, like the, you say like the, I guess you could say the opening of political possibilities concomitant with a sort of closing down of economic possibilities. Mm. It's kind of a big structure, big old structural parallel. Um, uh, the, the, the rise of open Nazism, big structural parallel. But I mean, I think that that's what I mean. I think that the, their best use is in understanding the dynamics of late capitalism and how it turns the world a little bit dumber. Um, those the big macro comparisons, I, to be honest, I mean, I, I've thought about, but I haven't got a well enough opinion to say it, or else I might be called stupid. <laughs> We're all stupid. <laughs> Thank God. Stupid in the show. <laughs> well, how about this? I don't have a well and developed enough opinion to, to, uh, to share it. Really, most of my well developed opinions, if you'll know me from, uh, from the podcast, are on like, you know, beat off techniques. So, yeah, you know, that's that's mainly that's mainly where my thinking is: obscure Marxist literature and beating it. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> just to further your increase, uh, left-handed, don't spit in it, because it, it works for a while, but then it just becomes sore and it's terrible. That's <laughs> uh, what I've learned. Fuck, i got to go. Yeah. <laughs> left-handed, you gotta, you got to... Um, first, it's left, so it's automatically more woke, and secondly, you just got to yeah. change it up sometimes. I was going to say, I mean, when I initially got into left politics, I did not know what I was getting into. Mm -hmm. ba -dum -bum -ba -dum -bum. I'll dub it oh, proper no. one there. Yeah. God, none of, none of this can stay in. It's such a jarring change in tone. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> you want to hear jarring changes? I'm going to play, to cap off the episode, a band called uh, Red Bait. They're a proletariat crust punk band from St. Louis, Missouri. Hell um, yeah, they sound, they sound metal as hell. They're more punk than metal, I'd say. They're, they're cool as hell. I, I like them. And they were nice enough to let me actually use this song, unlike uh, Iskra, who I couldn't get in contact with because they're like anarchist squatters and they live in a ditch somewhere. So they don't go on their emails. But um, yeah, I'm going to play a song called We Refuse. It's got like big shouty choruses and two lead singers and it's really good, and it's off their uh, album, or well, EP, Red Tape, which is self-released because they're, you know, they're p proper punks, real punks. And, uh, and I'll be back next week. But Riley, where could uh, people like hear and see you and read you more? Oh, well, let's see. Um, I've got some shit coming out. Uh, in text, but I don't know what's going to be out when, and I never like to sort of advertise writing until the um, until it's literally printed. So I'll hold off on that for now. But if you want to listen to, um, I uh, if you want to listen to a comedy podcast that I do, it's called Trash Future. You can listen to it on the internet, iTunes, for example, Stitcher, I think Spotify now maybe. Um, oh, you on Spotify. I thought they were like super uh, elitist and don't allow 
anyone on that. No, they've. O- they, I think. Well, it's, that's why I was saying maybe it's that they've yeah. recently sort of opened up their um, their th- shitty thing a little bit more. Oh, Who can say? In this crazy right. mixed up world of ours. Um, but you can find us there. It's hosted by myself, Hussein Kesvani. I was a journalist. Milo Edwards was a comedian, and we have all kinds of great guests on. So we've had guests like Owen Jones and Jay Rayner and stuff, um, and we're just sort of generally talk shit from a leftist perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, you can listen to me on that. It is Trash Future, the podcast for how the future is trash. And you can follow me on Twitter at Rale. It's R-A-A-L-E-H. It's a bad handle, I know. I picked it myself. And follow the podcast on Trash Future Pod. And I hope to s- see you in the listening you, you can't lounge. Like, you can't <laughs> see that. It's a primarily audio medium. I don't know why you'd it's say mostly that. an audio medium. This thing of ours. It's entirely an audio medium. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, really <laughs> confusing me here. It's Wait, you didn't know about the secret visual podcasting? Oh, yeah, well, I've taped over my uh, webcam. When, <laughs> when, when you um, enjoy uh, the internet as much as I do, uh, a little bit of masking tape goes uh, a long you way. Got to tape it up. Oh yeah, <laughs> you got to tape it up. And, uh, oh, cool. Cool. So, yeah. Uh, and I highly recommend Trash Future. It's uh, it's a good podcast. It's it's transcends the uh, British Chapo um, uh, idea. It's it's different and it's it's good. Ch- uh, check it out because it got really good guests too. Like yeah, Owen Jones, and Jay Rayner, and um, even some of the Chapo boys have been on there as well. And it's generally brilliant. So. Do check it out. Yeah, and uh, thanks. also listen to uh, Redbait and sing along in the choruses and by WP. And come back next week when we've got another really special guest. Someone I've been wanting to go on this show forever. She finally said yes. And we're going to talk about uh, fish, uh, merman sex. And uh, it's going to be disgusting. Oh, now that now that sounds metal also. Thank you very much for having me on. No problem. Yeah, uh here's Red Bait. <laughs>